0: Good morning. Welcome to Tennessee, where the weather is made up and the forecasts don't matter. <laughs> Someone said yesterday, it's, Tennessee weather is like a box of chocolates, you never know what you're going to get. Someone else said, Tennessee weather is why I have trust issues in my life. Do with it what you will. I don't know. I, I, I went to the store last night. I wondered if they were just giving up. I, they had uh, de-icer and mittens and, and hats up front and then uh, beach towels and sandals right after that. You know, they just shrug their shoulders and say, we just quit. We're not sure what, what to expect next. So uh, I, I don't know what to say either. We, we were in Pigeon Forge for a couple days for a marriage seminar and came home yesterday not sure if we were going to make it home, left a little early, you know, worried about getting back. And it just looked like it had rained around. There was a small snowman in our front yard the kids had put together, and that was about the only remnant by the time we got home about 4 o'clock yesterday. So I'm not sure what to tell you. But we're glad that you're here today, thankful that we can get out. It's funny because I was worried Wednesday night if everyone was going to make it because of the water, Uh, you know, the rain that we had had, and wondered if some folks might not be able to pass by some roads, and then, you know, worried this morning if everyone was going to make it and if there was any ice where you were. So we'll see certainly what the future holds, but we're glad that you're here today, this morning. We hope you can be back with us again this evening, Uh, and then certainly the second Sunday of the month here at Saudi is our busy Sunday. If you can be with us at 2 o'clock at the Saudi Daisy Healthcare Center, it is always an encouragement to those folks. When we're there and bring a good crowd and sing together and study for a few moments. Uh, But it's really encouraging for us as well who get to go. Uh, It lifts us up as we encourage others. So we hope you can be there for that. And then our young people will have Bible Bowl practice this evening. Lots of good things that are going on. And if you are here, as was prayed and many others have said, and you're looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us here. Many, many good things that are going on. You know, Jesus never really minced words when it came to the number of people who he would tell us, he would say, that would have a home in heaven. I mean, you remember in Matthew chapter 7 there, and he's in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, Matthew seven thirteen and 14, he says it this way, that wide is the gate and broad is the way, and many therein who, there are who will find it, who will go down that path that leads to destruction, but but narrow is the gate, and and difficult is the way, and there will be few who find it, who will have that home in heaven, who will be found faithful. It's, it's, it's just numbers, and it's just true. We certainly look around us, and we see that. We can see the world around us, and we feel like we are in the minority. And that's frustrating to us at times, but yet we understand that, again, throughout his time here upon this earth, that's exactly the message that Jesus was sharing. The fact of the matter is, and we began talking about that this last Sunday morning, and we're going to continue today, but the fact of the matter is, is that the church that belongs to Christ has been declining. We talked last week about that on average the numbers tend to show that it's around 100 churches a year here in the United States that will close their doors. And some people say, well, well, that's because they're joining together. A small church says we don't want to meet with just 10 anymore. We'll, we'll join with a congregation that has 200 and then we'll have 210. And that's sure that's true. That could be true in some cases. And so we go from two congregations to one. But at the same time, we recognize that, that numbers tend to show that we're losing 18,000 Christians per year in the United States of America. The other chart that I didn't use last week, and it's going to be kind of confusing for you to glance at, at a lot of numbers, but it's another one that Brother Rob Whitaker uses in his evangelism seminars. Probably the best place to look may be on your right, on the far right-hand side. But as we go all the way back to 1906, the census of 1906, and that was a big deal if you know the history of the Churches of Christ where there was a split and the church, Churches of Christ were identified together there. But from that time on, you see in the second column the population of the United States and then the number of members of the Churches of Christ. So when we talk about congregations combining, that's fine. But when we take those numbers and we make it into a ratio, you see that up until the early 1970s, that ratio was improving in our favor. That it didn't matter if the population was skyrocketing, that it was going much more because the number of Christians was continuing to rise as well. But if you can see down there towards the middle and then to the bottom, the population continues to rise, but the number of Christians simply does not. So you get some skewed ratios. We're all the way down to one member of the church every 289 people. Brother Rob Whitaker, when he presents this, makes an interesting point. Back in 1906, in some of those years, that would mean that as you walk from farm to farm, not run to Walmart or anything like that, but as you might walk from farm to farm in your city or county, you would pass 50 uh, or you would pass you know, uh, just a few before you would get to the next to the next christian you see that improve we don't have to go as far before we find a christian but then you begin to see it change you begin to see it go the other direction and now one to every 289 it's a fact and maybe we can't change it but maybe it's helpful for us to understand that as well and to do as we did last week and to begin to ask why Why is it the case that it seems that churches of Christ are declining, that Christians are leaving the faith? And I would submit that that probably includes a lot of young people, but it probably just includes a lot of people as well of various ages. And so last week we talked about the mission of Christ, and we said that the beautiful thing about the mission of Christ, which was to seek and to save that which was lost, the beautiful thing about his mission is that he transferred it to his apostles. Those disciples who were closest to him, he would tell them what they should do. It was going to be their responsibility. Even as Brother Jerry talked about in class this morning, Jesus says, I'm not going to be there with you the whole time. I'm going to leave. So it's going to be on you, in a sense, to continue to carry out this mission. And so Jesus takes his mission and he transfers it to his apostles who were there with him in the flesh. And then they transferred it to the saved, to the church. Paul talks about that in many different places. And do you know what's really interesting, what's really neat about that transfer, that idea that Jesus goes to the apostles and then the apostles go to the saved or to the church from the apostles to the saved. What's really, really interesting about that is that we are the church. I am her. The very same church that the apostles were a part of is the very same church that we are a part of today. I know it seems a little crazy for us to consider that over the course of time, but it is. We are a part of the same church that they were, so we carry with us the same mission. We bear this responsibility. So, what are we going to do about it? And last week we talked about John chapter 4. But this week, go with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we're going to begin in verse number 35 and look through the end of the chapter. Now, as you turn there, I, I believe that there were first century... Paparazzi, right? I, I, it's probably not the same way. There weren't cameras, obviously, the, the way. But, but I would submit to you, I believe that that Jesus had it worse than than any celebrity or superstar has ever thought about today. I mean, just people around him all the time. And, and I don't think that we could even begin to understand what that was like. I mean, we see it on the news today. We'll see a celebrity leave a restaurant. We'll see them try to get into a hotel. And there's just a, a large group. And there's cameras. And there's people screaming. And there's security trying to keep them back. And, and they will, they'll, they'll sneak into their hotel room. And you can just imagine the, the breath of fresh air, the deep breath, as they plop down for just a moment on the couch alone, finally, for just a minute. When Jesus is going through this, through his time here on this earth, that's exactly what he was feeling. Do you remember in Luke chapter 8 and verse 19, his mother and his brothers couldn't even get to him? I mean, those who were closest to him could not even get close because of those people who were with him. And so in Matthew chapter 9, with this pressing throng of people around him, with this mass of humanity that, that's probably jostling him back and forth and those who are standing near him, he's not mad. He's not frustrated. He's not pushing and shoving. He's moved. He's moved. And listen to Matthew tell us. Listen to Matthew's words beginning in verse number 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, this is a great account because it provides us with one of the 12 times that the Greek New Testament gives us one of the great Greek words, and I, I don't mean one of the words that has a powerful meaning or usage or one of those words that's a, a rich word study. It's just fun to say when it comes to this Greek word, all right? Now, I'll give all of you a chance to pronounce it in your own head there, okay? And you, think, you say what you think, and then I'm going to butcher it myself, all right? So this is one of, the, one of the 12 times this word is used in the New Testament there, at least, or at least by Jesus as we think about it. And it's used here in this particular verse. And it's actually used in the title of your lesson, especially if you have the bulletin there in front of you. Splagnizami. I'll get there in a second. I told you I'd butcher it. Compassion. Now, this comes from when we go backwards, of course, into the original language and look and kind of break it down. It comes off of splagha, which means spleen. So when we talk about compassion, we're talking about the spleen or the bowels, or the intestines. Now, when it comes to ancient history, of course, and to the Greeks and many others, they thought that the seat of love and pity was in the stomach. Now it begins to make a little sense to you. The bowels, the intestines, the guts were thought to be the seat of love. So literally, to have compassion here is to be moved in one's bowels to have the bowels yearn, to be moved with compassion, to be so moved that you feel it deep in your stomach. It makes sense? We're coming up on Valentine's Day. We begin to understand that. We talk about the butterflies. We talk about the feeling in your stomach. That's sort of what we're getting at here. For our young people who've been studying the book of Luke, you remember Luke chapter 7 when Jesus leaves Capernaum and he goes to Nain and as they're entering the city, there's a funeral procession exiting the city with a widow who's lost her only son. She's about to bury her only son. And the text says there in Luke 7 and verse 13 that Jesus sees her and he had splagnizami on her. He had compassion on her from the bowels. Think about it this way. We say sometimes my heart hurts for you. That doesn't mean that we have indigestion or that we're having a heart attack. We say my heart hurts for you. We talk about feeling it in our gut sometimes. I found one writer who who said it this way, and it's kind of interesting. He said, the Greeks might say, I love you with all of my intestines. (laughs) Don't write that on your Valentine's card. There's There's your advice for today, all right? So, back in Matthew, Jesus is moved with compassion from his bowels, and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. But what's interesting, of course, is that he wants to be their shepherd. You remember in John chapter 10, in John chapter 10 and verse number 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. John chapter 10 and verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. Jesus is so moved with compassion that he sees them as lost sheep, lost people. And he takes the moment to tell his disciples to pray. Pray for what, Lord? What should we be praying for? To pray that the Lord would send out laborers, into his harvest. Are you moved with compassion this morning? Are you moved with compassion for those that you know, those in your life who are lost? This morning we want to take a look very quickly at four words for us this morning. The lesson will be yours. The first one we want to talk about is the idea of deterrence. Now one thing the preacher is looking for each week is, is honesty. All right, not necessarily public, stand up where you are and be open in front of everyone, honesty, but within yourself, true honesty. And so we have to ask ourselves, if we're honest, sometimes there are things that deter us from time to time as we think about reaching out to those who we love, those who we know who are lost sheep. They stop us. These things prevent us. And the first one is already on the screen. That is, I don't know enough. One of the things that will stop us sometimes is to say, I don't know enough. Now, you know, preachers hate this one, right? I mean, we just do, because do you think I feel like I know enough most weeks from time to time to sit down and discuss with someone? But let me ask you, are you a Christian? This morning, are you a Christian? What did you do? Then you know enough. I mean, it's nice, and you should know the scripture. We'll talk about that. But but if you know what you did, then you can tell someone else to do simply that. You may not be able to regurgitate exactly each verse by scripture, by chapter, book, chapter, and verse. You may not even be recall what those verses say, but you can talk to them about what you felt, what you thought, what you remember, and then you can share that. And it's a starting place. It's a starting point for us. Oftentimes, you know enough. We're all familiar with first Peter chapter three and verse number 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you. Interesting words here as well in the Greek. If you were with us last Sunday night, the verse begins, but sanctify to be set apart, to be holy. If you were with us last Sunday night, we talked about our word for the month. It was holiness, hagiatso. But sanctify, set apart the Lord God in your hearts and be ready to give an apologia. We talk about apologetics, to be ready to give an answer. It's not that we're scientists. It's not that we have our doctorate in, in ministry or in Greek New Testament or anything, but we're ready to give an answer, to be able to explain exactly what we did. I don't know enough. That's a deterrent sometimes but one that we can certainly get past and set aside. Number two, we're waiting. Well, let's touch back with our other one. Sometimes we're waiting because we say, I don't know enough. I need to know more. Well, some of us, be, we'll be waiting a long time. We say, I don't know enough, but we never go further with study. Sometimes we're waiting till someone comes to me. We say, well, I'll just wait. I'll be, I'm ready, but I'm just waiting till someone comes to me. And then I'll talk to them. Sometimes we're waiting uh, until the church organizes something. I'm willing to talk to people, but I really wish those elders would just do something. Then I'll just, I'll join in. I'll, I'll go along. Waiting. Sometimes waiting will deter us from doing what we know needs to be done. Let me ask you this. Do farmers plant the seed or do the farmers just get up in the morning and sit there and just wait for the crops to come to them? I don't think that's how it works. We can wait all day long and nothing will happen. It's a deterrent for us to think, well, I'll just put off till tomorrow what I know I can do today. That's true about salvation, but it's also true when it comes to evangelism and reaching out to others. We cannot just keep waiting, but waiting to the right time, waiting for the elders, waiting for the preacher, waiting for someone to come to me, waiting till I know enough. We'll be waiting a long time sometimes. Number three, it's not my job. It's not my job, even though Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, you go into all the world. This is the transfer that we talked about last week to the apostles, the apostles to the church or to the saved. Paul would write to Timothy. We said this one last week too, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2, commit these things to faithful men who will share them with others also. There's a chain reaction. It didn't stop with Jesus. It didn't stop with the apostles and it shouldn't stop with me and you. Remember the words of the Hebrew writer, Hebrews chapter five, verses 11 through 14. He talks about by this time, you ought to be teachers. You should keep improving, quit waiting so that you can teach others. But yet many times we say, well, it's not my job. I'll wait for the preacher to do it. I'll wait for the elders to do it. And then one more in the ways of deterring. I'd like for you to make special note of this one. If you write notes out to the side, I didn't have room in the bulletin for it. One of the deterrents that sometimes gets in the way that prevents us from sharing the gospel with others is my influence. Let's face it, if we're being honest, and I'm asking for honesty, you ain't got to say it out loud or raise your hand, but you can think in your own mind. If we're being honest, sometimes the biggest deterrent is myself and my own behavior. At least 20 times between Matthew and Luke, they record for us that Jesus would refer to people, very often the scribes and Pharisees, as hypocrites right you know what that is to be fake to stay to be a stage actor to wear a mask we talk about hypocrites one of the biggest deterrent for us sharing the gospel is sometimes simply ourselves we're not asking to be perfect Jesus doesn't ask you to be perfect even in that sense he knows you can't be the new testament writers know that we can't be perfect But what about our influence? Are we living in such a way that someone might say, might ask, why is it that you're doing that? Why is it that you react this way? Why is it that you are different than everyone else? Holy, set apart, even as we talked about Sunday night. Our influence sometimes is a deterrent. And we can't blame that on the elders or the preacher or anyone else. Sometimes what stops us from sharing the gospel is our own influence. Keep that in your mind for just a moment because before we get to the third point, I would say secondly, the thing that we can do is we need to be determined. These deterrents get in our way, but we need to be determined to share the power of God. Instead of focusing on these things that sometimes stop us, we must be determined. Determined to share the good news. It's called the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the greatest story in all the world. It's the answer that we need. It's what makes our lives whole and complete. It gives us peace. Some people don't understand. They can stop drinking. They can stop living sinful in some ways. And that that makes life a little easier. But true peace comes from true hope. True hope hope comes from being in Christ. We have to be determined to take that message and share it. We know the words of Paul in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God. We need to take that to the world and we must be determined even in this world of deterrence. Many of these deterrents we've talked about were within ourselves, our own mind. We're not even talking about the ways of the world, the loud voices, the talking heads on the news channels that would try to silence us. We're just talking about ourselves, but we must be determined through all of that. But it's not all negative. The good news in the third place this morning is we have some devices. We have some tools that can help us. Satan has them as well. Do you remember 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11? Paul would write, 2 Corinthians 2, 11, beware lest Satan should take advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. He has devices as well that he uses, so why can't we have some? But I ask you to remember, what was the last deterrent? Your influence. Well, your influence can be a device as well. Is it a deterrent? Is it a device? And of course the answer is, it's up to you. It's up to me. Paul would write in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 8, first, as he writes this letter, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. He writes, I thank my God for you, that your faith is spoken of throughout the world. You know, I'm beginning to see that a little bit. I go places, say, hi, my name is Joel Danley. I preach for the Saudi Church of Christ. Everybody says, "I've heard of that place. I know those people." Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? In the sense I'm using, it's been a good thing because people know your works, they know your love. But we must continue in that same manner. First, uh, First, Peter chapter two, verses eleven and twelve. Peter says, "Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims that you abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul." But verse twelve having your conduct, your actions, your influence, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may, by your good works, which they observe, which they see, which they can tell, glorify God in the day of visitation. We talk about it all the time that Jesus says there again in the Sermon on the Mount that we should let our light so shine so that people can glorify God. Is your influence a deterrent? Or a device, a tool that can be used to reach out to others. A few more. Other people. Do you know someone that you think might know more than you that you could talk to? I'll tell you, I'm, I'm always ready and willing. I would be thankful to sit down and study with you or certainly with you and someone else. What's the preacher oftentimes called? The world calls him a pastor. Here we sometimes say the preacher or the minister. You ever heard anybody use the term evangelist? Where does it come from? The idea that the preacher should be not the only one, but part of the evangelism process in a congregation. I'd love to go with you. I'd love to be there and try to study with someone. I think our elders would too. I think many of our deacons would too. I think many of our members would as well. If you sit here and within yourself, you say, I don't know enough, but I'm willing to try. What about other people? That's certainly an opportunity that we have. A few other more practical things. Back to the Bible. Back to the Bible is a study series. I've got, it's a three booklet series. I've got some in my office. We can get more. They're a dollar each. There's three of them. It begins in book number one, John 8 32. You shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. Very simply, filling in the blank, going through many different things in the Bible with someone. Very simple. You don't have to know it. All we want you to do is turn to the passage with them and help fill in the blanks. The Bible study does all the work. It's very, very interesting. I don't know how many of you have ever seen that before, but it's so simple. And we have some and we can get more. On top of that, there are stacks of studies and papers in the secretary's office that you can use. I would suggest you get some and look over it, obviously, before you sit down with someone. But many of them are in the same vein. They're in the same light of just sitting down with someone and opening the Bible, a simple device, a simple tool. You ever read the book Muscle in a Shovel before? I know many of you are familiar with it. We've got one copy here. But again, they're not very expensive. This is one that's from our library. If you've not read it, I would encourage you to try it. I had not read all the way through it until recently. I would picked it up a couple of times, never finished. But a very powerful study. It shows you, it talks to you about how someone might reconsider some things in their life. And maybe, just maybe, just maybe they'll come back and ask you a few questions. Don't have to do a lot of work. It's very easy, again, to hand it to someone. As the book says, the hardest thing sometimes is reading it because it makes you a little angry when you think about things. If you uh, don't believe in what the Bible has to say on some matters, then you're going to kind of feel a little uncomfortable with it. But it's a good thing. I'd suggest this to you as well. If you have your notes and you're writing things down there, it's called A Little Cup of Wisdom. It's a YouTube video or YouTube set of videos. It was actually put together by someone working with GBN, the Gospel Broadcasting Network. What I think is interesting about this is that it's pretty much the book, Muscle and a Shovel, in a video form. Now there's a bunch of like five minute videos and sections, or there's one that's about an hour where it puts them all just in one straight video. But it's essentially a young man who's marrying this young girl, and as they're ready to get married, he's not a Christian. I mean, he's been to some other denominations, but he's not a Christian. And he does exactly what Michael Shank does in this book, and he begins to to study, he begins to question things, he begins to try to get back to the Bible, and then he has. A revelation, not a revelation from God in the sense of something new, but he begins to see exactly what the Bible has to say. A little cup of wisdom. It's something in a different format that you might consider or share with someone, even this morning. Now, are you ready for the rubber to meet the road? Are you ready for the questions? I recognize there are some deterrents. There are things that get in the way, and I can give you devices. I can give you some tools, and I'm even willing to be one myself but I can't give you the desire. I can't do it for you. I can't make you care about someone else, either an acquaintance, a co-worker, a friend, or a loved one enough to be willing to go through that uncomfortable moment of saying, would you read this book? Would you go through a Bible study with me? I can do a lot to set the stage, but I can't give you the desire. Think of our passage again from Matthew chapter 9. Pick the largest crowd that you can imagine in your mind. We just went through the Super Bowl; many people watching, stadium full of folks. Think of a a full to the max, standing room only, Neyland Stadium. The music festivals that go on around our country. We've got one even here in Manchester, Bonnaroo. You think about the hundreds of thousands of people that are there. New Year's Eve in Times Square. I think I'm making my wife claustrophobic just talking about all these people standing around, you know. But imagine that, if you can for just a moment, the largest crowd. I'm sure it probably wasn't that many around Jesus. But when he, when he sees the multitudes, he's moved with compassion for them. Do you care? Do you have compassion? Do you have a desire to carry the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world? Because the truth of the matter is, excuse me, I went too far. It's up to you. It's up to you. It's up to me. I mean, I don't stand here and just point the finger at you only. It's up to me as well to do the work of an evangelist, to share with people that I love and come in contact with. But all too often we respond, go into all the world. Well, Lord, I'm awful busy this week. I got a lot going on this month. Preach the gospel to every creature. Well, they won't listen. I mean, why would I waste my breath? They won't listen to me. Look up, as we talked about last week, the field is white. <laughs> I'm good, I, I, don't, I don't have time right now, I'm too busy to talk to anyone, it's too uncomfortable. The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Do you have a desire? Do you have compassion as our Savior did? Don't let the deterrent stop you be determined. Use the devices and tools that are at your fingertips that you can easily access and share with others and have that desire, have that compassion. But as we said at the end of the lesson last week, you can't share something that you don't have. You can't share something that you've never experienced yourself. You can't share the good news of the gospel if you have not been obedient yourself. Trust and obey this morning. God's simple plan of salvation Be immersed for the forgiveness of your sins, allowing the Lord to add you to the saved, to his church. Accept that mission, that responsibility. Gain that desire. Have that compassion. Recognize the hope that is within you and be ready always to give an answer for that. Not a dissertation, not a 12-page paper, but to simply give an answer for what you did and what anyone who wants to be a New Testament Christian, a follower of Christ, a part of the saved, a part of the body can do. You can share that. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never done that. We'll be singing to encourage you that you can obey these simple steps of salvation. Or maybe you've done that, but you've wandered away. Maybe, just maybe, and I know, I've said this before, but I understand sometimes the sermons on on modesty... Sometimes the sermon's on evangelism and you say, well, I can't respond then. You know, people will think, well, I've not been evangelizing. The, The point of the Lord's invitation is that if there is something between you and God this morning that is amiss, if there is sin in your life that is separating you from him, make it right. Don't leave with that worry in your mind. Maybe you've not been the best evangelistically. That's okay. Maybe you've been doing pretty well in that, but there's something else. Maybe it's your influence. Instead of being a device or a tool that you can use, it's a deterrent. Because you know that if you ever tried to hand someone a Bible and say, let's study, they'd say, really? Because I know the way you live. I hear the way you talk. And those actions don't match up with what I know or what I think I know the Bible has to say. Don't let yourself be a deterrent. Either become a Christian or come back to him. Even now as we stand together and as we sing.